last time we talked about this whole, I use this analogy to kind of say, when you look at biblical history, you've got the people of God being in captivity, which is in, in Egypt. You've got the people of God being in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. We've got, they go into the promised land, but it's not quite the promised land as it will be because there's still everyone in it. It's an occupied promised land. And then you've got them actually in the promised land as promised. But we made the comment that the difference between being in the wilderness on the cusp of the promised land and being in the promised land when it's still occupied were very, very similar. It's just that one began the project and one was still outside. And we never actually really see the promised land in the Bible. Do you remember, I don't know if we remember this point, but uh, the point is made that they go in with Joshua and they take the land, but then when you get to Judges, it's just it's all, it's clearly not what God had promised. And it goes on like that and on like that. And then in Hebrews, it says this was not the rest that God had promised. They were looking to another rest. So we talked about that. And then we talked about how there is an eschatology, there is an end goal to the law of Moses. And um, Poe actually referenced this in his sermon on Sunday, if you heard. He was talking about how there was, the, the law was always there for the nations to be involved with. And so we looked at the blessings and the curses of the Mosaic Covenant. And we kind of said there's like, there's like two eschatologies here. God says, here you go. What are you going to do? Is the end goal going to be that you're going to be the head and not the tail? That you're going to bless the nations? That the land is going to be blessed? That's going to be like Eden again? Or are you going to take the other eschatology, the other route, and you're going to be the tail, not the head. You're going to be led astray. You're going to be sent into the nations in exile. You're going to be destroyed. And we finished by saying how when you, when you finish the Old Testament, the eschatology that they take is death. Israel is in exile. The, the tribes are scattered. The nations have the power. And that's really important to bear in mind, because what we're going to talk about tonight is this, well, tonight's session is called, is called The King and the Nations, because these are really important things. Now, we are going slow. If you got an eschatology book, for instance, and it went through kind of building a biblical eschatology, I guarantee it would not have a chapter on these. So I don't actually know. Tonight, we might be done early. It's fine if we are. I just think that these are important concepts to understand, because what we're looking at is how the picture starts to unpack how these things start to unfold, how God's promises start to build and people start to expect more. So there's, uh, as I say, eschatology is almost about intensification. So this eschatological king, the eschatological thing that's going to happen to the nations is about the intensification of God's promises. Um, so let's, let's do it. Let's jump in. And as I always say, if you have any questions Check your hand up. If I'm going too fast, check your hand up and say, slow down. If you want to go back over something, even if it was half an hour ago, put your hand up and say, can we go back? That's fine. Okay. So, um, first thing, it's on your handout. You should have it there. It's just, a, it's just a tick box. Have we heard anything about this king yet? Nothing? Henny's confidently. Okay, did we, we didn't actually look at Melchizedek, though, did we? No, we, we, haven't, we haven't looked at Melchizedek, but um, I can see why you'd think we had. Uh, You've got to love Melchizedek. He's just... He is. Uh, we didn't look at Melchizedek, but we did look at a different prophecy. Does anyone remember a prophecy in Numbers? Actually, there's been two. Did anyone do a tick? Yes, yes. So in Numbers, 
Balaam prophesies about Israel, and he says, I see him, but not yet. I see him from afar. A king will come. He will subdue the nations, and so on and so forth. So there was a promise there. And we use that analogy that G.K. Beale comes up with, that when aliens are coming near to the earth, they say, it's just a blue bob, a, a blue blob with some green speckles. And then they get closer, and they start to see, oh, there's actually sea, and there's land. And then they get even closer, and they say, oh, there's actually trees, and there's desert, and so on and so forth. And eventually, they can see roads and faces and eyes. When they said it's a blue blob with green speckles, that wasn't wrong. It was just zoomed out. So when Balaam says what he says about Israel, it's not like uh, it was in any way wrong. It was just a very, very zoomed out. He said it was, um, I see him, but not close. I see him from afar. There is a king coming. He's going to subdue the nations. So there's no kind of detail to it. The other one we looked at, does anyone remember, it was in Genesis? Genesis 49? Ringing any bells? Genesis 49.10? Okay, so uh, Israel gathers all his sons to himself, and he says to Judah that there is a, a king who's going to come from you, and the scepter will not depart until all the nations have rendered tribute to him. And, and thus far, I mean, we've gone through all of the law of Moses. That's all we've seen about a promised king coming. Now, this isn't necessarily a promise, but there is this strange thing in Deuteronomy. Bear in mind, in Deuteronomy, they're in the wilderness still. They don't have kings. They have judges. But in Deuteronomy 17, there's a chapter where it says, when the time does come for you to have a king, this is what the king must be like. And it's, it's interesting because it's, it's not actually prophesying anything. It's just saying, if you do have a king, this is the kind of guy he needs to be. So, have we heard anything about a king yet? Yes, we have but it's been blurry, if you like. It's been a blue blob with green speckles. Have we seen a king yet? We've kind of already answered this, I suppose. No. There's been no king in Israel. There's been nothing really even like a king. Um, yes. Uh, now, we're going to skip over quite a few books because, well, not because they're bad. Just, you know, we do have to have some pace. Um, but I will just pause and say, one, there is a little glimpse of a king you get, actually, in the narrative of the Bible. So, um, you know the story of Gideon? It's funny how Gideon's always held up as the hero, uh, which he is in the story, but the ending is often ignored. Because if you look at the ending of the story of Gideon, they say, uh, you need to be our king. And he says, oh, no, 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 the Lord is our king. So, I'm not going to do that. And we always read it and go, yeah, that's, yeah, that's... That's great. That's good old Gideon. And then you find him kind of running all the affairs of the, of the country and telling everyone what to do. And then his son comes along, and his son's name in Hebrew means, my father is the king. <laughs> so <laughs> Gideon would say, no, 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 I'm not the king. And then, oh, what do you want to name your son? You're, my father is the king. You know. Uh, so th there's kind of been a glimpse of a king, but it's always put in a bad light. And then when Saul comes along, that's kind of really confirmed, you know, Kings, something wrong with them. Uh, they're, they're bullies. They, they do what they want. They're above God. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the way that the Bible views kings, really, which is when you look at Deuteronomy 17, if you think about it, if you were going to be the king of a nation, especially in the ancient world, what is the one thing you would want a lot of? I realize that's a very broad question. So, you... Power. Money. 
wives, because they represent alliances, um, chariots for defense. When you read Deuteronomy 17, what does it say? The king must not have many wives, he must not have many chariots, and he must not be rich. And the thing that he must do is write his own copy of the law and study it every day. So the Deuteronomy 17 ideal of a king is kind of so anti-cultural in the world that they're in. And the image is Israel is only going to be led by a good king if that king is a Yahweh-fearing man. Um, yeah. So I want to start with some group work tonight. Uh, if we turn in our Bibles to this passage in 2 Samuel 7, the background to this is this is after the narrative of David having become the king of Israel. And when David is the king, he does not have an easy time at the beginning, as you probably know. He's anointed in secret. He is not acknowledged to be the king. He has to, he's faithful to God. He doesn't fight his way to be king. But when he does become king, he has a really hard time um, kind of holding on to his, uh, to his kingdom. And there comes this bit in 2 Samuel 7 where it basically begins by saying, David looked around and saw that the Lord had given him rest. So there's a kind of thing of like, he's got no more fighting to do now. And then, just to give some context before we actually read this in our groups, but um, he then says, well, I've got this spare time, and I live in this fancy palace. Meanwhile, the Lord is still in the tent. What I want to do to honor God, to, to show my, my loyalty to Yahweh, is I want to build him a palace which is even better than mine. So I'm going to build the Lord a house. And he says this to the prophet David, and the prophet David says, sounds great. Do it. And then David goes off, and the Lord speaks to him, and he comes back, and he says, no, the Lord actually says, no, you want to Lord build the Lord a house, but I'm going to build you a house, which is a you know, play on words, because house could mean dynasty, or it can mean a building. But anyway, let's go and read this passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 16, and just go through it, and just ask, what features, talk about this in your group, what features stand out about this promise to David? Not necessarily what jumps out to you, but what marks this promise? What features are there which are noteworthy? So read it in your own time and then just chat amongst yourselves. I'll probably put, let's say, 10 minutes. I'm very sorry we had a recording issue at this bit. I forgot to turn my microphone back on, unfortunately. So the recording will come in uh, a bit later on. What we talked about in the meantime, just for context, is we talked about how um, the book of the, the promise in 2 Samuel talks about the, this king that's going to come, who God is going to establish his throne, that it's going to go on forever and ever and ever. And then we looked a bit at that, how the book of Kings relates to this promise, and it kind of sets up this anticipation that this king is coming but never quite arrives. And there's kind of kings that come who get better and better, and it finally gets to Josiah. But then even then, everything goes wrong afterwards. And then we talked about how this had come to really drive the hope of Israel. We looked at Psalm 89, how Psalm 89 clearly is grounded in the hope that there is a coming king, but ends very much on a negative note about the fact that that king hasn't come yet. Uh, and then from there, we talked about, uh, well, we looked at a few passages. So we looked at Psalm, Psalm 2, Psalm 72, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, verses 6 to 7, and Zechariah 9, verse 9. And we asked the question in groups, what kind of promises or expectations are attached to this promised coming king? And from what passages do we get that from? So we went in groups and we, we talked about the kind of profile of that king. So which is where the recording is going to pick up again now.
Right, tell me about your king then. Huh? Amen. Let's finish there. Okay, what did we glean? So what promises or expectations are attached to this coming king? And from what passages do you get those promises or expectations? Sock it to me. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yes. So you said, so one thing you said is that he cares for the poor. Um, I, I mean, by the way, that verse, I mean, that, the way that it, the way that it, he will rescue them because their blood is precious in his sight. Like, if that doesn't motivate you to if you want to be Christ-like, then see the lives of those who are suffering as precious. But anyway, yeah, so that, um, the extent of his kingdom you mentioned, that it's from the river to the ends of the earth, which, do you remember when we saw that language used before? That phrase has appeared already in, in Genesis. God says to Abraham, I give you this land from the river to the ends of the earth. And do you remember what we said there? that this is just a, like an idiom, this is just a phrase of it saying, everywhere. So, yeah, so the extent, and you included that last bit as well, it's very good, all the other kings are going to bow down to him. Okay. Yeah. 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 They're from Isaiah 9. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, that's Isaiah 9. It's one of these verses that, why do we only bring it out at Christmas? Like, don't we want to be reminded that like, we have a king who's also our counselor all year round? How good is that? The other thing that, you know, it says the increase of his government, there will be no end. That doesn't just mean he's got a really big kingdom. That means it's going to keep growing and growing. Yeah, okay, anything else? Well, I know there is anything else. I don't know why I'm saying it like that. There's more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which passages were you drawing that from? Or just all of them? Yeah. Yes. Debbie said that you rejoice to be under his reign. But it's a joyful thing. Yes, that is a good good point. Thank you, Felicity. Speak up. Yes. Yes, the humble king. Very good. Okay. <laughs> Okay, yeah, let's just, uh, I think especially with the echoes. Speak louder than you think necessary. Okay, anyone else? He's far greater than earthly governments. In Isaiah, it's like government is upon his shoulders. And Psalm 2 speaks about the terrifying, the, the 
Yes. Absolutely. You know, I, Psalm 2, like, so who is this king that we're talking about? Let's just, you know, we, we've got the New Testament. We can all be open about this. Who's the king that we're talking about? Okay, can I ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the king? Because I don't think many Christians, they either don't believe Jesus is the king or they haven't read Psalm 2. Because this says, the nations conspire, the kings of the earth rise up, they try and go against the Lord. That's true. They actually are doing those things. They really are going against him. What's the Lord's response? Oh, dear. What am I going to do about this? That's how a lot of Christians think about it. You know, we see, something, we see like secularism rising or some ideology that's opposed to God, and we go, oh, dear. What this one says is, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, and he scoffs at them. I think of someone like, you know Voltaire, the French philosopher? The man who said, in a hundred years from my lifetime, the Bible will be a forgotten relic, only gracing museums. Do you know what happened a hundred years after he died? The Bible Society bought his house, and now it is, the, it, now it is full of Bibles that are distributed across the world. And most people have never read anything of Voltaire. It's just like the, the history is full of, of occasions where people have said, yeah, we're going to get rid of this, this Jesus fella. And God's just gone, <laughs> I'd like to see you try. Like China. China is set to be the world's biggest Christian nation in 20 years. From the place which in the 80s said, we have no religion here. It's like, guys, yeah, th there are going to be bad things that happen. The nations are going to conspire and, you know, we have to deal with that. But let's just remember that the Lord isn't in heaven, you know, shivering. He is laughing. Let's join in. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a monologue. What else? Priest. He's a priest. Psalm 110, is that? Yeah. Um, I like to call Psalm 110 God's favorite psalm because... The, the, there is Okay, so the, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament all the time. The second most quoted passage in the New Testament is quoted seven times. Psalm 110 is quoted 23 times. So this is, this is God's favorite passage. Um, yeah, and it talks about him being a priest. Uh, just according to Psalm 110 verse 2, when does Jesus start reigning? Yeah. Yeah. When his enemies are still raging. Even just last week, I was talking to someone who was telling me, no, 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 Jesus isn't king until he comes back. Yeah. When, when the second coming happens, then he's going to go to Jerusalem and then he'll be the king. It's like, what? That's not what the Bible says. He's not going to wait for everything to get sorted out. That's going to take forever. He's going to do it himself. And it says in verse 1 that he's going to be the one that sorts out. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So. Okay, anything else? Yeah. Very good. 
Amen. So I hope we're getting the impression here that this kind of this picture of Jesus that the Old Testament is giving to us before we know that his name is Jesus is one where he is, to use New Testament language, both lion and lamb. He is the mighty one. He is the one who holds the rod of iron. He is the one who laughs when they try and stand against him. But he's also a wonderful counselor. He's also the one who cares for the poor. Uh, he's also the one who is the priest who intercedes for his people, you know, so on and so forth. So, I mean, it's, it's really, it really is good news. Um, this is a complete digression because I hadn't at all planned to talk about this, but I think... No, oh, oh, I'm just going to say it. Okay, when we talk about the gospel, if you say, oh, what's the gospel... Nine times out of ten, we'll often say something about um, if you believe in Jesus, you can have your sins forgiven and you go to heaven when you die. And uh, that's not bad. There's nothing wrong with that. But my question is, is that the gospel that when it says in Luke 20, for instance, and Jesus was in the temple preaching the gospel and they went around preaching the gospel, is that what they were saying? I really don't think so. The gospel, that phrase, appears in the Old Testament in Isaiah and the first time it's used, the gospel message is, God has come to be king in Isaiah 53. Speak the gospel. God has come to reign. So the gospel, definitively speaking, is the fact that through his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ is the king. And the reason why that is such good news for a world that needs to hear it is because of all these things that we're reading. What kind of king is it that has become king? When we get the profile of the king right, we understand why it's such good news when we can say to someone, hey, did you know that Jesus is the king? Okay, anyway, that was, uh, that was a digression. But I hope we're seeing uh, yeah, why this was animating the hope and expectation of God's people so much. Okay, uh, so how does this relate to the bigger story? Why are we talking about this in a course on eschatology? You know, it's great to talk about Jesus, but how does this relate to the end times? Well... Because, as we've seen before, God planned to transform the world into a glorified temple. God has planned to glorify his creation so it reflects his glory with his people. His people were the means of that transformation. But his people have ended up like the broken world around them. Now this king is the hope for his people's restoration and therefore he is the hope of the world's restoration. So to put it like this, I've got this little, um, in, in, there's, a, there's a study not only in theology and in all kinds of things. If you do English literature, for instance, they teach you this as well. Something called narrative criticism, and it basically looks at how does a story work. So you could think of it like um, Little Red Riding Hood, for instance, is a story about a woman sending muffins to her mother. Yeah? That's the, that's the beginning, and that's the end. The beginning is take these muffins to your mother. The ending is grandma has muffins. But if someone said, what's Little Red Riding Hood about? And you said, about an old lady receiving some muffins. It's right, but it's wrong. So you can kind of, what you can kind of do is say, okay, so you have the mother, you have the muffins, and she's going to the old lady. Now, Red Riding Hood is the means of how those muffins are going to get there. Okay? And the wolf is what's getting in the way. That's what's stopping it. And the axeman is the means of how it's going to be fixed. Okay, so uh, this is all going to be visualized. So the story of the Bible is God is going to glorify his world. And so this 
is the eschatology of the Bible. Yeah? Grandma has her muffins. Israel, God's people, whatever you want to call it, these are the means of how this is going to happen. But the problem is they've ended up like the world around them. They're in exile. They're sinners. They are just as broken. And so God is going to restore them through the king. Axman gets Red Riding Hood out. She can get the muffins. She can give them to grandma. Job done. We're back at the goal. The king is going to come and restore the people so the people can do what God wants them to do. So that's why it's so important that we spend time understanding why this promise of the king comes in. Because Israel are never going to be Israel so long as this king doesn't appear. Does this make sense? Okay. Let's look a little bit at the nations. Because we probably saw just then in those passages that um, the nations were talked about a bit. So how did the king relate to those nations? It crushed them. But it also says that the nations came and rendered tribute to him. And that they came and bowed down before him. Uh, so there is a sense in which this isn't just about Israel. This is also about them too. Which is, again, same thing as what we saw about the Mosaic Law. This isn't just about Israel. This is about everyone looking at Israel. Okay, so... Um, just think quickly. You are an Israelite at the time where the Assyrian Empire is at its height. And about five years ago, they came and they destroyed your neighbors up north who were your kinsmen. They've tried to destroy you. King Sennacherib came and tried to destroy Jerusalem, but went away. But he's back in Assyria amassing power. Now, doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, maybe you're, a, maybe you're a mother of children, maybe you're a man in the army, you, are, you have some role in Israel. How do you as an Israelite, and how do you think the, the country more widely around you is feeling at the moment about your security and your place as God's chosen people? Very wobbly. Yeah. Israel's not big. It's really not big. Syria is massive. So you're gonna you're gonna be in in fear. The, the kings are gonna be in fear, and if the king's in fear, the one who's in his nice palace, surrounded by weapons and all those things, how's the average person who's maybe not even living in the city walls feeling? Now, I think that's really important to understand because when you, again, go through one of the two kings, the big, there's this little uh, refrain that appears in one of the two kings. In this season, Israel was being attacked by X. You know, uh, Aram was attacking Israel at this time. The Moabites were at war with Israel at this time. Or the Assyrians had just come in and invaded, you know, and so on and so forth. Someone is always at the doorstep waiting to, to knock you down. And... And so how are you feeling about your place as God's chosen people? You're probably pretty terrified and thinking that it's not going to last long. So, so God obviously has a solution, a promise, a hope that he's going to give his people. Now, that, that promise could be he's going to destroy them. That, that could be one way of thinking. So this is one of the things that uh, Poe uh, talked about on Sunday. Uh, when Rome was in charge of Judah... In the first century, there was a, a huge group of uh, people called the Zealots, 
And their view was, not only are we not going to be under the control of the nations, but they are going to be, actually no, sorry, I should save this for the next one. They are going to be under our boots. God is going to humiliate and subjugate them. So Israel, Israel being the head and the nations the tail basically looks like we call the shots, you're our slaves. So are these God's solution? Is he going to destroy the nations? Is he going to humiliate the nations, subjugate the nations? How is he, what is he going to do for his people Israel? It's on your handout, so I can't exactly, I'm going to give away the surprise already. What else could God do? Wow, now, where did you come up with that? How about convert them and bring them in? Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in that position of being that Israelite thinking through those things, I think this is the most terrifying option. Because it's, it's much easier to see someone in prison or you know, subjugated and you don't have to worry about them anymore. Let me put it like this. Who would you worry about more, the sex offender who is in prison or the sex offender who's just been let out of prison who's come to live on your street and absolutely swears that he has been changed? So there's almost like a safety in just thinking God just destroyed them. What's terrifying is the notion that God actually could make them our brothers. And... Yeah, I mean, I don't have a point to make other than that, really. But, I mean, that, that thing, I think, takes a level of faith to actually trust in that promise. So I want us to read in our groups Isaiah 18 to 25. Same thing as before. Let's talk about it um, and just see what's, what stands out, what's significant. I'll just read it from the front and then we can all talk about it. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the City of the Sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Let's just take a couple of minutes, not long, but what's significant about that? Yeah, Israel is in third place. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Yes. Very good. That's very good. I mean, that, I don't, I'm not saying that's a very good answer. I'm just saying, thank the Lord that that's true. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Joseph, really good. Egypt. 
When an Israelite hears Egypt, what are they hearing? These guys are like the archetypical oppressors. These are the baddies. They are the baddies of the baddies. This, this, okay, to put it in context, this is like us saying, and Hitler will be worshipping with us in the new creation. You probably don't like me saying that. That's something that sounds really, I was talking to someone the other day, and I said, how do you feel about the fact that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient even to save Hitler? Now, I'm not saying that I think he is saved. I, I don't think so. But if he had repented, and that's the same thing Israel's hearing, the villains who literally define the word villain are being called my people. Thank you, Joseph. Very good point. Yeah? What else? Who are the other people? What are they known for? Yeah, so Assyria are the people who destroy the northern kingdom. These, I mean, if, have you been to the, put your hand up if you've been to the British Museum. Okay, so you've, have you seen the, the reliefs there where it shows the story of Assyria? And if you've had it explained by a tour guide, you'll know that these guys, they know how to hurt people. They literally waltz in, not only with weapons of sieging and warfare, but also with instruments of torture ready for when they capture people. These people like in, inflicting pain. In fact, there's a historian who thinks that the reason why the Assyrian Empire fell and the Babylonian didn't is because Assyria was uh, too obsessed with hurting the people that they've captured, whereas Babylon was willing to kind of bring them into society. These are nasty, nasty people. And when you get to this verse, verse 25... Blessed be Egypt, my people. That's a phrase that's used all throughout the Old Testament to refer to Israel. Assyria, my handiwork, a phrase that's used all the way throughout the Old Testament to refer to Israel. And Israel, my inheritance. Like, this is so... As I say, this is, this is the whole sex offender thing. You know, like Israel, you, you're going to be there lined up with the sex offenders that I'm going to transform. So it's not just like, oh, that's good news. It's actually really kind of, it's like subversive good news, if that makes sense. But that's what the Lord wants to do. So that's, that's good, isn't it? Right. Um, anything else on Isaiah 19 before we move on? Yes. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I nearly moved on and forgot to say. Who has a really good geography of the uh, Middle East? What's in between Egypt and Assyria? Israel. So Egypt's there at the top of Africa. No, wait, from your perspective like that. And then you've got the little land bridge, which is Israel, and then you have to go through Israel to get into where Assyria was. In other words, Israel are being told, hey, good news, you guys are going to be the meeting place for your two worst enemies. Yeah, thank you for that, honey. I forgot. Um, okay. Another place in Isaiah. Let's just go back a few chapters to Isaiah 2. We're, we're just coming into land now, as you can probably see from the handout. Okay. Um, 
Oh, are you ready for this? Who's ready for this? Ready? <laughs> ah, let's do that again. Ooh. Right, let me read this. Isaiah 2, this is what Isaiah son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up the mountain of the Lord to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. So, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be higher than all the mountains. All the nations will flow to it. They will have God as their God, and there will be no more war. But that's for like a few thousand years, right? Uh, not that I'm saying this has already happened. I'm, the point I'm trying to make when I say that is, so when Peter stands up in Acts 2, and he says, for the prophet Joel says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The thing is, Joel never said in the last days. That comes from this. So what Peter's doing when he does that is he's taking those two quotations and he's saying these refer to the same thing. And the point there is that Joel is saying this has begun to be fulfilled today because the spirit has been poured out. In other words, what that means is the mountain of the house of the Lord has begun its upwards ascent. And guess what? None of us are Jews. We are all the people that this prophecy is talking about, the nations that have flowed to the house of the Lord. But clearly, the Lord is not done yet because then all the nations are going to have the Lord as their God. All the nations are going to be converted and, and have the Lord as their judge. And nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The reason I kind of want to go to this is because we need to understand that the purpose of, that God has in the world. Now, I'm definitely jumping the gun because we're trying to do this slowly. But I, just, I, I want to make this point that th this goes back to that Psalm 2 thing. We go, well, this clearly isn't going to happen. You know, it's just naive. It's just idealistic to think this is ever going to happen. Well, the Lord likes to laugh at those who oppose him. And there is going to be a day, because I believe in the promises of the Bible, I believe in the king that's coming, when there is going to be no, war, no more war. And that's not just kind of a way off then. That's a promise that God has made for this world and for his people. So we sang on Sunday, crown him with many crowns. Crown him the Lord of love whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end and round his pierced feet fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. The message of that verse is what Isaiah 2 says. This is good news for us. Okay. So the nations are going to flow in. So what we've learned today is that the eschatological promise of the Bible that we need to know is that the nations are going to be converted, that the king 
is a very good king who's going to reign over the whole world, a king that we can rely on. And there is going to come a day where because of that king, war will cease. The world will be at peace. We have a very good gospel. Like, when we say, well, the gospel is, you can be forgiven. That is good. But that's like, you know, if someone said, oh, what's a sandwich? It's a slice of salami. There's a much bigger sandwich here, guys, and the gospel is really good news if we understand the unfolding promises of what the Bible has to say. So we didn't get time for it in the end, but if you look at Isaiah 11, Isaiah 11 just really nicely folds these two things in together. The king's going to come, the king's going to be great, he's going to convert the nations, the nation's going to be converted because of the king, and so on and so forth, he's going to bless the world. So read that in your own time. Um, But yeah, I think that's pretty much... Oh, I did a little animation. Ready? The nations, the king... Anyway, let's do a quick recap, then we'll finish. So, we saw how the eschatology of Israel became centralized on the coming king. We looked at the character and the profile of that king, and we found him to be most pleasant. And then we saw God's plan for the nations and their place in God's plan for the world. They will be brought into Israel. Good news. Okay, shall we pray to finish? Nat, would you pray for us? Amen. Thank you, Nat. Thanks, guys. See you next time.